0: We are glad that you are here today. Uh, This is Covenant Church, and you have chosen uh, to give us some of your time uh, to see what God is doing here. And so we want to say thanks for allowing us that privilege to welcome you into this incredible community. Uh, We want to get to know you, and one of the ways we get to know you is uh, a little brown card you'll find on the information table. So look straight out those doors when you head out. You'll see a sign that says info table of a stack of these cards, some pins, and the easiest thing in the world to throw a couple bits of information on it. Drop it in the basket. Grab a covenant mug. If you're feeling really bold, grab two. You know, whatever you want to do. And um, enjoy your next warm beverage on us, knowing that we're going to be praying for you. And we would love to do anything we can to connect you to this incredible community and to help understand how we can serve you as we together serve uh, this city. And so I want to say thanks for coming. Uh, What we're going to do is go straight into our sermon. Uh, We're doing Activate. This is week three of four of our Activate series And so Greg started us off a couple weeks ago. I came back last week and taught us a Hebrew word or two, and we're going to double click on that and learn another one today. I was almost, I will be honest with you, I was a little bit tempted this week to totally scrap the whole rest of the series and do a deep dive on prophetic and apocalyptic literature because there's some sort of strange white ice falling from the sky. I don't know if you saw this. was really disconcerting in my home we didn't know what that was my children picked it up and they said my hands are now cold what is happening it's not what it looks like on tv so as you have all already told me we should expect uh, a bit more in the months to come and that will make it look like nothing and yet um, I was scrolling through revelation looking for you know when the fire is going to start falling from the sky and the whole thing so that was all new for us um But we are glad to be here with you and glad to be doing this life with you and so as we get started i will tell you that last week we talked about uh, righteousness tzedakah was the word we learned this idea of living rightly because it's the right way to live living rightly with others because god has um, given us hope in jesus he's instilled in us righteousness and so then we live that out with others that's the the kind of primary justice that we talked about. Today, we're going to move on to the second word we learned, mishpat, and we're going to learn what does it mean to do secondary justice, to do restorative, rectifying justice work in our world. And to do that, I'm going to read the same thing we read last week to get started, Job 29. Job 29, uh, Job is making his case before God. He's basically complaining, but he's uh, sort of crying out to God saying, look at who I am. Why is my life so hard? So let's read Job 29, verse 12. It says, because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them, the one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. I put on righteousness, that word, zedakah as my clothing. And justice, mishpat, was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and I was feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. Right, so Job is setting the stage going, look at my life, I've done everything you ever asked us to do, and yet my life is still hard, and you're still bringing trial, and there's still this trouble that I didn't ask for, and he's saying, I didn't earn this. And so last week we learned about this first word, Zedekah, he puts it on as his clothing, say Zedekah, you're doing so well again. He puts on primary righteous living as his clothing. He deals fairly and equitably with people no matter their standing. But he says, secondarily, justice was my robe and my turban. Mishpat. Say mishpat. Mishpat is this rectifying justice. This is what we do when we recognize that the world is broken. So Zedekiah is the way we should live with each other all the time anyway. And when we fail at that, then mishpat comes into play. Then we have to go and we do restorative work because something has gone terribly wrong. We talked last week about these produce boxes that you strange people have out in the street. Just all summer, there's just boxes of produce with little boxes of money and nobody steals the money. Not even uh, pastors new to the area who think it might be a donation. Nobody's stealing corn. Nobody's stealing you know these giant zucchini that you uh, seem to grow here. I, nobody steals it. People are practicing righteousness first and foremost. They're going, I will put my $4 in, I will take my one bag of corn, and this system will work because we're doing this rightly. And we said that should somebody uh, feel a little bit clever and decide to take all the corn and the money box, that would create a brokenness in that right living. That would have a whole domino effect, that people would be chaining the little bucket of money to the stand, or they'd have to man the stand, or they just close the stand, In addition to that, you'd have to go find whoever the the corn money thief was. There'd be a manhunt out of the streets. You'd have to find justice for this terrible injustice that had taken place. So this is uh, how we set up. What does it mean to live rightly? And then what are the costs when we don't? So Job says, I put on righteousness as my clothing. When in the primary justice, we said, is like socks and underwear. You just put it on. You don't even think about it. I hope. It's a daily expectation. And he says, Mishpat, this other justice, it's our robe and our turban. These are external garments worn to go and associate with other people. So the primary justice, you're associating with other people, but you're just doing it because it's the right thing to do. But this turban, this robe, is something that you have, to, you have to put it on, and you have to know, I am going out to deal with a place that's not okay. This is important for us to remember because our Western idea our Western American idea of what it means to live righteously, is personal. We're an individualistic society. We judge everything as individuals. And so for us, there's an individualistic sense that living righteously, living with justice, is about my personal morality. I had my devotional. I said my prayers. You know, I didn't speed on the way to work. I got home. I treated my wife with respect. And I'm done. And for most of us, we, we equate personal morality with right living, but the Bible doesn't allow us that. In, in scripture, personal morality is always expected of followers of Christ, of, of believers in the one true God. Personal morality is expected, but you're also expected to deal with the world around you in a certain way. Micah 6, verse 6 through 8, it says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Should I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. Micah asked the question, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. What's happening in context here is this is an indictment of Israel. Micah is indicting the people of Israel because they are not practicing Zedekah. They're not practicing any personal justice with the world around them. And so what they then do is they've set up this system of sacrifices. They can come in the temple and because they've they've mistreated this person, they can bring in these doves and have them cut in half and the sacrifice happens and then they walk away clean and they just go and keep mistreating people. And Micah is addressing this going, this is not the system that God ordained. This is not the way this works, that you can just do whatever you want, and then if you, if you put the right sacrifice on the altar, then it's all okay. What God deeply desires of you is that you would do justice, and love mercy, and walk humbly, and in doing so, the sacrifice wouldn't be required to absolve you of all this mistreatment of others. God is basically through Micah saying quit with your offerings and start living the way I've asked you to live. Kindness and mercy in there that to love mercy that's a, a word that means God's unconditional grace and compassion. And how often is my grace and my compassion for others conditional? Justice. Act justly. That's that mishpat coming back rectifying restorative justice so he asked the question what does the lord require of you to act justly to restore relationships to restore the earth mishpat also means to to bring to justice and so uh, in crime and and that whole idea of like crime and punishment mishpat applies there too so if if i wrong you in a criminal way you bring me to justice and yet it's also true that when there's an injustice why do we why do we Um, prosecute crime we prosecute crime because somebody has been wronged and while we can't fix that wrong we can't go back and make your television get unstolen or we can't go back and make your uh, house get unbroken into or worse what we can do is come up with some system that tilts the scale back and so whoever did it is prosecuted and brought to justice but we can do that work relationally We can do that work. We can make uh, the orphan's life whole again. We bring them to justice. We don't prosecute them. We bring them to justice by providing a forever family. We can do that for the person who's stuck in generational poverty. We just have to be more clever about how we see the world and what justice actually means to us. Mishpat doesn't just mean bringing someone to justice. It, It has that underlying idea of, undoing the suffering of someone who suffered injustice to restore right things to a world that's gone off the rails. So God is challenging us not to go deeper into religion, but to get serious about restoration. And the Old Testament talks about four types. Greg mentioned these uh, in passing. He kind of flew by them. The quartet of the vulnerable. This is important. Zechariah 7 verse 9 and 10. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice, mishpat, Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Some people say, we're spending a lot of time in the Old Testament on this justice stuff. What about Jesus? I didn't come to erase a letter of the law. I came to fulfill it. Jesus came one with his father. So as we talk through those things, this is the heart of Jesus. Jesus came and quotes Isaiah to say, I'm coming to set the oppressed free. But the context, widows, orphans, immigrants, poor, what we need to see is not to take a, a, a like for like. It's not apples and apples. We can't say, okay, so then the four people we need to worry about are widows and orphans and the immigrant, refugees, the poor. Those, those are our four. I'm not saying don't worry about them. But what, what we can do is actually expand our perspective because the reason these are named is because this was an agrarian society. Subsistence farming in an agrarian society, these are people without social power. So in a world where the man goes out and farms, what happens when the husband dies? The widow left behind is immensely vulnerable because who will do the work? What happens for the child in a day-to-day harvest-to-harvest existence? I mean, imagine if all that we had just harvested in this region we put in silos not to sell, but we said we need to live on it until next year. And what happens when something goes wrong next year and it's a little too hot or it's a little too dry or it's a little too wet and all of a sudden we're living on this year's thing for two years? What happens? Who are the first ones affected? The poor. The ones that don't have an extra storehouse in their, in their place. And so these are the quartet of the vulnerable because in this society, they had no social power. There was no one to advocate them for them. There was no one to speak up for them. And when bad things happen, and we've all lived long enough to know bad things are going to happen. When invasion happens, when famine happens, what occurs is these four groups were the first ones affected. It's not just that they faced certain death in time of famine. They were the first ones in line. Because they lacked an advocate. Who cares for the immigrant who has no citizenship here, owns no land? Who cares for him when times of famine? And in biblical times, nobody did. So the prophet of the Most High God speaking on behalf of God, inspired by God, says we are charged to look out for them. So the question I ask you is then who lacks an advocate today? As you look around the world, as you look at at our society, who is it that's most vulnerable? Who lacks an advocate? When things go wrong, who's the first one to be affected? Who's the first in line for trouble? It's going to be some of these same people, but there are more. And so we need to pray that God would open our eyes to who is it that's vulnerable? And then what is it that we're supposed to do for them? Who lacks an advocate today? Reality is our personal righteousness, as we live out the calling God has put upon us, our personal righteousness is displayed in our public work. Justice and restoration work in the larger society is the single greatest witness of the modern American church. They will know that we are Christians by our love. But the way we pour our lives out for each other and for people who don't benefit us. It's not to say that our faith is a show for all to see. But it is to say that our faith cannot be compartmentalized into a private sphere of our life where we have personal morality. But we have no relational understanding of the way that our life infects the lives around us. Because all justice is relational. The reason we need mishpat, the reason we need restorative justice in our world is because our world is full of injustice. We need secondary responsive justice every single day because we, humankind, does not live with primary justice every day. So you think about a child in the foster system, right? How did they get there? Somewhere righteousness was not lived out. somewhere something was broken through no fault of a child often through circumstances that the parent would never have asked for and something breaks and so what happens the child is thrust into the foster care system we would say the the language of our time is they're at the mercy of the system right Well, this child's at the mercy of the system. This this impoverished person is at the mercy of the system. This immigrant is at the mercy of the system. Systems don't have mercy, people do. So if we are relying on systems to take care of the immigrant and the poor and the vulnerable and the orphan, we are failing because systems lack mercy. God has given us the responsibility to be mercy on behalf of him. People are the only essential in the work of restoration. Choose whatever program you want governmental, non governmental, publicly funded, privately funded, however you want to do it. The only essential in restoration work is people. We helped launch a ministry in Texas that was called Open Table. The founder was a Jewish businessman turned Christian who was in a soup line, a serving the a soup line for homeless in his area in Phoenix. And he ladled out a thing of soup and said, God bless you, and kind of didn't make eye contact. And the guy looked at him and he said, I don't need more soup. And they started a conversation. And, and so what he naturally did as a businessman, he says, well, well, what do you need? He says, I need a job, but I don't have this document. And I can't get that document because I don't have this document. And I can't go there because I don't have a car. So I'm homeless. And he goes, well, we could fix that. And so this businessman gets his, his friends, some of his network, his colleagues, and they surround this guy. They build a network. And he asked this question, if you were uh, laid off today, you got news from your boss, you no longer had a job, what would you do? Call your last boss, you'd call your neighbor, you'd talk to your brother who owns that thing over there, you would tap your network. And somebody knows somebody who knows somebody who could help us out and get us a job, and we would all be okay. But for the vulnerable, what's their network? For the person coming out of prison who's been in there since they were 17 and they're coming out at 27, they just served 10 years, they're coming out. Who is their network? The people who put them there. You don't want them going back to that network. For the person stuck in generational poverty, well, who's their network? Well, it's a bunch of other people stuck in generational poverty. For the, the child in the, in the system, who's their network when they age out of the system? Nobody. And he said, you know what the difference is between people who are, perpetually poor and not the poor don't have a network and so that's our job he essentially was quoting eugene peterson who says the poor are not a problem to solve there are people to join the vulnerable not a problem to solve there are people to join and he pulls up this graph that says over the last 40 years through republican and democrat through this idea and that idea the uh, total percentage of impoverished americans hasn't changed one percent in the last 45 years We've tried this idea and that idea. We've tried left of the aisle and right of the aisle. We tried it all. And he says, I'm sick of it. And my idea doesn't scale either. Because we're Americans. We go, well, how does it scale? I mean, what if you had 20 poor people? How do you help them then? And he says, one. Me and 10 friends surround one person for a year. And a year later, that person looks at us and goes can I be on the next table and so we find someone else who's vulnerable who's ready to make a change and we surround them and then we surround them and he goes it's a domino effect but it makes a difference the poor are not a problem to solve they are people to join we live in a fallen world which is depressing at times everything is broken and that which isn't broken will break eventually we are born let's be honest right every single one of us is born and on the day we're born the clock starts ticking on the day we'll die that's hard none of us are going to outlive that clock scientists call this entropy the natural death of everything like the sun which i hear i'm not going to see for a couple months the sun is this ball of gas that's slowly dying It's as bright as it's ever going to be in a billion years from now. It's going to be gone. It's a slowly dying ball of gas. And the tree that you plant today is now growing on its way to dying. And the grass that is covered in that white substance is now Everything is on the way. Entropy. It's just natural. Because there's a break in the world because there's fall that happened. And so everything we touch naturally is going to see this slow death we we bought a house our house needed some work a lot of you to our great um gratitude and uh, what was really humbling to us is people just kept showing up at our door offering to help us with this house our kids sleep in rooms you painted uh you know i can go on and on and i'll start crying so let's not do that but this church shows up and says, we're going to help you get settled, but anybody who walked in on day one and smelled the upstairs or looked around the corner and saw why somebody would paint an entire living room BGSU orange, you, you were like, this, the, what happened? And it was like paint by numbers in some rooms, and then some rooms were like, you tore the carpet out, and there was like goblins and things, and like rising out of it, shrieking as they left the room. It was, it was interesting, Right? The owners didn't care for it well. So what did it do? Did it stay nice? No, it naturally progressed into the state we bought it. It needed restorative work done. It needed mishpat. Rectifying work needed to be done to the house. And here's where we get this wrong sometimes. The house isn't a project. It's not a project for us to solve. It's not a problem that we can go and fix and then it's done. Because the second we fix it, guess what happens? It's still on that track. And so not only do we need to fix it once, but then we need to build a relationship with our home and be always fixing everything all the time. This is what work looks like in our society with people. We throw mission trips at things, and we fix one thing one time, and we paint a wall or build an orphanage, and we go, hey, we did it, and we feel better. Nope. Because the second we leave, everything starts right back down that track. And so when I would lead a mission trip, I say, We don't do projects, the project is the people. We build relationship because relationship never expires. You can't resolve relationship. And so as we look around the world and we say, God, show us the vulnerable, show us the people in need, what we're not looking for is now so I can give them a solution. What we're looking for, which is way harder, is God show me a relationship. Help me live rightly first and foremost, and then when I see wrong, help me right wrongs. These are issues in our world, but these are things that we're doing. The Daughter Project, that's what we're doing. There are young women that have survived things I can't imagine. And sex trafficking, and they get picked up by the Daughter Project and given a home. And what, when I was talking to the founder, I said, what can the church do to help? He started, kind of, you know, his he, shoulders slumped. Well, and I said, no, wait, let me stop you because I see what's happening. I say, I know what churches do. Not bad things, but they offer to come clean the house, right? Uh-huh. And they offer to come paint a wall, uh-huh. Or mow the yard or fix the fence, uh-huh. And I said, those are necessary things, right? And he goes, yeah. And I said, but your shoulders slump because they don't actually make a long-term difference because we could pay somebody to do that. And what you really need is relationship, right? And he goes, I've been praying for it for nine years. And so I said, hey, this thing I... I did in Texas called the open table he looked at me kind of funny and I said you know it's trafficking is different it's a really intimate kind of wound and so it's not 10 people it's more like six people but we would surround somebody and in their year in the house we could be their network and their family and when they kind of graduate out of the house we're their community and so they can come to us when and he lit up and he's like that's what I've been waiting for that's what global connections is It's not a project to help a family from outside of the country. It's a relationship. It's a a willingness for us to get deep into the weeds with somebody and say, this might be hard, but I'm going to go through it with you. That's open homes. A kid is not a project. It can't be easily resolved. See the heartbreak on the faces of church members when a child they've loved and fostered is removed back to a situation they know isn't good or when a child even goes to a good situation and the heartbreak of going we've been deeply in life with this child and I just hope we get to keep relationship the beauty of the way God wires us is that when we do what he's called us to do when we actually do what he's wired us for when we get deep in relationship with the vulnerable and the hurting we a realize that we are the vulnerable and the hurting we just hide it well and we be feel more alive than we've ever felt before because we're finally living out that thing he's asked us to do do justice love mercy walk humbly walk humbly with your god humility requires that we realize we're not the center of the universe this is hard once we get there and we realize i am not thing around which the rest of the world orbits, then our time is not quite as sacred because it's not my time. My money's not so important to me because it's not my money. Our lives are not too valuable to be poured out for others because I've been bought with a price. It's not my life. We move beyond issues. We move on with people. Like enough with issues, right? Thank God we're out of the the election season because issues, issues let you dive in and dive out. But every single issue you can conceive of is of a personal consequence to somebody. Every issue that we debate or every issue we try to tackle is actually somebody's daily existence. Abortion is not an issue. It's someone's nightmare decision. Syrian refugees aren't an issue. There are people fleeing genocide. Welfare is not an issue. It's a people trying to live and not starve and figure out how to get their life rescued from generational poverty. How we best love the poor in our midst is up for debate. That is true. Whether we love them is not. And what I walked into when we showed up here months ago was a church that gets that already. And is doing that already. So let this be an encouragement. I see it. I see bursts of this incredible light being poured out of this place. A community that won't ignore the hurting in in, in the city. A community that won't rest When there's others who need love and light and hope and joy, this is a community who gets it. And yet we have to be reminded over and over because as soon as we get it, we forget it again. Deuteronomy says When you're harvesting in your field, you overlook a sheaf. Don't go back to get it, leave it for your foreigner, the fatherless, the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. These are complex issues. But God is basically saying, even though I've blessed you with an incredible harvest, leave the edges. When the grain falls and it's not collected in the harvest, leave it, because somebody needs it. I'm going to allow them to come and experience the blessing of your overflow, no matter how they got there. Right? Our job is not to figure out how someone got into poverty. Our job is to help them get out. Our job is not to figure out how someone got themselves into some treacherous situation or something that we would moralistically go, I don't know if I'd be there. Our job is to say, I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'll walk with you until you get to the place you want to be. We said it last week. We remixed the golden rule. Do unto others as God has done unto you. See people tell their stories for them. Poor not a problem to solve, but a people to join. And all justice, all justice is relational. We get busy think I have time Uh, some years ago I was working at a bank in San Antonio I was on my lunch break the bank was on a major highway and so I take the highway a few exits down I have my lunch and I'm headed back to my office and you know how this works when you leave the office for lunch you leave yourself like negative six minutes to get back on time and meet your next appointment and so I was kind of little bit in a rush get back on the highway and I'm on the uh, frontage road the access road to the highway there uh, I'm coming to a major intersection and I'm expecting to have to stop because it's just traffic and you just stop For whatever reason that the light is green this day and, and traffic is moving and everything is smooth I'm like yes okay so instead of uh, on the brakes and, and decelerating I'm now 25 30 35 40 I'm accelerating excited I'm gonna make it back to the office on time it's a good lunch going to be a great day. And as I'm accelerating, I see this figure at the corner, the highway intersection. And there's this guy with his sign. We'll work for food. Anything helps. You know the ones. It wasn't just any guy. I recognized him um, immediately. He had shorter arms from a birth defect. We're about here, so he's holding his sign in close. Walked with a little bit of a limp. He was the manager of my high school basketball team. It's been, you know, five, six, seven, ten, I don't know how many years since I'd ever seen him. But he's just standing there holding this sign. I know him. This is not a problem of homelessness. I know him. And I keep accelerating. Because the light is green. There's a line of cars behind me. And as I cross the intersection. I now have a thousand feet to make a choice. And my mind is not working that fast. I'm either getting on the highway to get back to the office. Or I'm staying on the frontage road to go and do a U-turn. And come back and see this guy. And the very natural, rational responsibility conversation is happening at light speed in my head well I have to get back to work but I know him but they're expecting me to have a meeting but I but I know him and I got on the highway and I got back to work and I got very little done that day As soon as work let out five o'clock hits I jump in my car I peel out of the parking lot I get right back to the intersection as fast as possible he's gone I park in the nearest parking lot. I'm looking under bridges. He's gone. I missed it. I missed it. There wasn't an issue with homelessness. There wasn't a problem of poverty there. There was a person that I knew. And God said, how would you like to participate in my restoration work today? And I said, yeah, but I got a meeting at one. It became really personal for me because I could see in stark clarity that we have made an abstraction of people. There are seven billion. I can't fix that. I could give my whole savings. What would it do? What good would it do? It's like the old thing about the little boy walking along the beach, picking up the starfish, and throwing them back in the ocean. His dad says, buddy, you can't save them all. And he goes, I saved that one. We have a responsibility and God is faithful to allow us to participate in his restoration. This includes our generosity. Ezekiel 18, suppose there's a righteous man. A righteous man. That word is tzaddik. I'll explain that in a minute. Who does what is just, mishpat, and right, zedekah. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He doesn't commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry, provides clothing for the naked. He doesn't lend to them at interest or take a profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. The word a righteous man, Sadiq, it's a doer of zedekah. It's someone who's living rightly. And what he says is it's not enough that he doesn't rob people or exploit the poor. We have lowered the bar in our culture as to what it means to live as a righteous person. If, as long as it doesn't hurt someone else, it's generally okay as judged by our society. But that's not what this is saying. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he gave and took for pledge and alone. loan. He does not commit robbery, but what does he do instead of committing robbery? He gives his food to the hungry. The, the construction, the grammatical construction here is to say that if he doesn't give to the hungry, he's robbing them of justice. That's what this says. This is hard stuff to drive by someone and go, Yeah, I just didn't, feel like I can't help them all. And so we say, Holy Spirit, lead me and guide me and show me what it is I am going to be able to do. And yet the Bible's really clear when we have the ability, when he sets up one of these divine appointments with somebody in our life, and it isn't just financial. Give them an hour. What's more valuable than our time as modern Americans? And I know, that hour, I can't replace that. I can't buy that back. But he says not giving to someone in need is robbery. And we go, but individually I can't help, but collectively we could if we all did what it said to do Maybe it would be different. United Nations estimates that it would take $30 billion to solve the world hunger problem. To get every belly full for years, $30 billion. I don't have that. If you do, our tide boxes are right on the back. Feel free. $30 billion. US defense budget this year is $637 billion. Not a commentary on whether or not we should have warplanes or warships or missiles or or any of that. It's to say that a 4% reduction in our military spending would feed the entire world for a year. Which isn't to say that we should reduce our military spending, or we should. It is to say that there's plenty of money. That God did not create a world where there's too many people and not enough resources. God created a world where there's too many people that aren't sharing the resources. So I can't worry about those abstractions, 30 billion of this or 7 million of that, but I can worry about me, and what am I doing with the ones in my midst? People often say, well, that was a good sermon, but I I don't know how it applies to me. So we like to do diagnostics. The question here would be, how do you spend your money and how do you spend your time? Your checkbook And your schedule are the two clearest indicators of your gods. you spend 40, 50, 60 hours a week working. That's part of what we do. So you don't go, well, my God is work. But maybe it is. Or I spend a lot of money on my house and my utilities. And well, your God is your house. Well, probably not. Maybe. we got to do the hard work of looking at our own lives and going, where am I spending what God has given me? My time and my money. My hope and the grace that he's in. Where am I spending that? So go home and watch the Steelers beat the Browns by 600 points and don't feel guilty. That's not a sin. But if you rewatch the game seven times afterwards and you're not one of the few people in this community who are getting paid to watch football games over and over, perhaps there's an issue. More days than I care to admit, and I say this because I am here to serve you and it would not be serving of you to act like I had it all together. More days than I care to admit. My life speaks clearly that my main focus is me. My main concern is my entertainment or my comfort. And my main God on those days is myself. So I'm committing with you. We got to get better. And we're doing great in relation to the rest of the world. And yet God wants more. We're called to be more put our money where our mouth is to be radically generous towards God's plan. This is my first season going through a budget here. Like like 20% of the money that goes into the church boxes turns around and gets handed to a ministry in the area, to a Open Homes and the Daughter Project, to, to these missions that are doing hard work with vulnerable people. I feel good putting my tithe in because I see that it isn't simply going to sustain us and feed us. It's not inward. And you should be congratulated because you're part of a community where that value is so obvious that this church puts its money where its mouth is. We should have our passion on display. Radical action on behalf of those in need. I would love for someone to tell me they had a conversation with their boss this week. Come find me next Sunday. Say, so I had a conversation with my boss this week. I was 30 minutes late coming back from lunch because I saw a guy on the side of the road and I stopped and I helped him and I had to explain to my boss why I missed that meeting and he didn't know what to do with me because I told him I stopped and I, I took this guy to this diner and we had a meal and I learned his story and I helped him out and I gave him 10 bucks because all I had on me and, and I hoped that was something and my boss went, oh, oh, oh okay because that's what your boss would say. May our lives be poured out for others in radical sacrifice. To know Jesus and make him known is to know Jesus. That while we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we were vulnerable and marginal and not really worth saving, he said, I'll save you anyway. We got ourselves into a mess and he says, I'll help get you out. And then in case anybody is feeling like they're sitting in a pool of guilt right now. Because that happens. That's not the intention. We all have room to grow. We all have room to be better. And as we say so often, it is okay not to be okay. Just don't stay there. It's okay to realize I've not been who God called me to be. Just don't stay there. Next week, we're going to close this series, and I'm going to give you some options of things that can be done. Some ways to activate. I could have done that this week too, but I chose not to because I'd rather we spend the week praying as a community. What I would like for us to pray individually, collectively, is that God would open our eyes to those who need the church. Individually and collectively. God, open my eyes to who needs my hands and my heart and my resources. And then next week I'm going to challenge you and I'm going to say Here's what this looks like. Here's what it looked like in the first church. And here's what it could look like if we get a hold of that vision because we're so close. And so much of it's already being done. And so this week we pray. And the next week, as we finish the series, we are going to activate. Let's pray now. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray that uh, in this moment we would recognize our circumstance. We would see ourselves as the vulnerable and the marginal. We would see ourselves as the poor and the powerless. We would recognize that in our greatest moment of need, when we were helpless and drowning in our sin, that you provided your son. And you lifted us up and you picked us up and you didn't do it. by making an issue out of us or a short-term project. Father, open our eyes that when you restored us, you did it through a relationship. So as you call us to go and do likewise, Father, may we be a relational people. Across the street kind of people, a walk down the office hallway kind of people. Helping strangers in the parking lot, kind of people, Father, open our eyes to the reality around us, open our eyes to those who are in need, not simply materially but spiritually. Open our eyes to the wealthiest person we know who is bankrupt because they'd lack you, and then give us the words to speak, give us the actions to showcase you and display you so that others might see your beauty. Father, as we pray for that, for our eyes to be opened, I pray that you would give us courage to act, endurance to stick in there. And ultimately, God, I pray that you would unify us as the body as we celebrate these stories that tumble out of a community that is so committed to making you known. Father, I pray that this would be a community encouraged today, that would be uplifted today, that would be celebrated today, knowing that this is the DNA of this church. May we spread it in this region for your glory. In your son's name, amen. We're going to continue. and.